Well, we're here in Joshua 10, and I'm going to read a part of this chapter with you this morning. And so if you're able to, if you would stand in honor of God as we read his word together. Beginning in verse 1, Joshua 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azkala and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written about in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Come down into verse 40 of chapter 10. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, we would again just beseech your your grace to us. 
We thank you that you are a, a sovereign God who is in control of all things and yet a God who is aware of us and kind to us and fights for us. We pray, Father, that you would fight in our lives, you would allow us to pursue our desire, which ultimately is you. You would give us the, the grace to be obedient, the grace to experience the fullness of peace and fellowship with you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite Dr. Seuss stories is, is Yertle the Turtle. Perhaps you've heard the story of, of Yertle the Turtle. It begins, uh, on the faraway island of Salamisan, Yertle the Turtle was king of the pond. And things are good for Yertle and for his kingdom. But then the story continues. Things were good until Yertle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I cannot look down on the places beyond. This throne that I sit on is too, too low down. It ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king I'd be ruler of all I could see. And, and so all of these, he calls all of his turtles to, to come to him, and they begin to, to stack on, climb on top of one of each top of each other on this, this stone, and then as the story progresses, you can, we can see the field, and then you can see a little bit beyond the field, and then you can see a little bit beyond that, and then, then he wants to see beyond that, and he, he sees the moon, and he wants to be higher than the moon, and so kind of towards the story, he, he begins to, to, to command more turtles to come, and then it says, but as Yertle, the turtle king, lifted his hand and started to order and give the command... This plain little turtle below in the stack, a plain little turtle whose name was just Mac, decided he'd taken enough, and he had. And that plain little lad got a little bit mad, and that plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped, and that burp shook the throne of a king. And so all he burps, and all the turtles begin to fall, and they crash, and then the story concludes with this says, and today, the great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all I can see. And the turtles, well, the turtles are free, as all turtles, and perhaps, maybe, all creatures should be. Now, I, I love that story by, by Dr. Seuss. It's, it's deliciously subversive, right? And, and what's, what's Seuss telling us? Well, he's telling us, look, the, not all turtles are nice. Not all, I think he's trying to say, not all people are nice, right? Not all turtles and people in positions of power are going to use that, that, that power wisely and kindly and benevolently. Not all kings are good. But, but that's the bad news. But the good news is that the authority that a king has or a person has is, is finite. It's, it's limited. Uh, a turtle doesn't even have all the power that he thinks he has. His, his power is limited by his ability and, and by, by his realm. Even in the areas that he rules, he, he can't rule absolutely. Now how does that, how does that relate 
to, to God and, and his, his authority. When we think about God's authority, what sort of words come to mind? There's, there's two words that I want to think about with you this morning and kind of, kind of unpack and try to understand as we think about God's authority. We're going to spend a little bit longer in the introduction here to kind of help us understand what's taking place in these chapters in Joshua. One of the words that I want us to understand is the word sovereignty. When we think about God's authority, we think about the word sovereignty. And I want to give kind of a long definition of sovereignty and then kind of a short one-word definition to help us understand sovereignty. The the big definition of sovereignty, and you find this in our, our teaching statement, sovereignty is God's absolute control of every event and circumstance in his creation. God is is sovereign over everything. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is sovereign. Now, that's kind of a a longer definition. Now, if we were thinking of of one word to describe sovereignty, what what word might we use? Yeah, maybe the word power. We're powerful, right? You think about sovereign. You think about a person who's in control. And and we can kind of see examples of this in, in our life. I I think about the, the power of a government, right? It's, it's, there's a sovereignty to our government. There's a sovereignty to a king. There's sovereignty. There's, there's power that our, our older siblings kind of have over us sometimes, right? I didn't, I didn't have any older siblings, but I had some older cousins. And they were about, I don't know, 10 years older than me. And I'd see them every couple of years. And I remember one time being just this, this little kid and... I was in the hallway of my grandparents' home, and one of my cousins was walking by, and he says, hey, do you know what a wedgie is? And I said no. And suddenly I found myself suspended in the air, dangling, and realized that my my cousin had, had grabbed my underwear with one hand and had pulled me up in the air, and I was flailing around powerless and, and thinking in my mind, what sort of human being does this to another human being? And just being very surprised later when I told my parents what had happened and showed them this, this ripped band that it used to be part of my underwear and, um, and being shocked that they found that funny. I didn't... It's a cruel, cruel world, right? So as we think about sovereignty, we think of, of power, and, and that's just a, a taste of power, right? As we think about God's power, it's, it's absolute. There is no area in which he does not have power. But, but how does he, he wield that power? He's, he's not some mean older cousin. He's, he's, he's what, what kind of God? He's a good God. And that brings us to a, another word to think about, the word providence. Providence, kind of a longer explanation of, of this word, providence is, is the way in which God exercises his power. He's continually involved in his creation in such a way that he's, he's sustaining it. All his purposes are, are accomplished. He directs all of his creation to fulfill his purpose. We think about what we read in Acts 17 is, Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So God, in his providence, determines place and and time. He says he did this that 
that, that men should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, but he's not far off from each of us. In him we, we live and move and have our being. And so God is, is sovereign, but he's also provident. He's powerful over, powerful over all of his creation. Now what's, what's one word we might use to describe God's providence? Yeah, maybe the word relationship, right? The word relationship. It talks about how God continues to be in relationship with his creation, right? He's powerful, and he continues to direct his creation towards his purposes, but in such a way that he's, he's, he's allowing his creation to fulfill the purposes that he has for it. Now, as we think about obedience and God's sovereignty, it becomes very hard for us to understand how these things go together, right? You have a God who's sovereign, a God who exercises his providence. He, he relates to his creation in such a way that his creation fulfills his purposes. Now, what does that mean for our obedience? This is a hard thing to understand. What does this mean for our obedience? In, in what sense, if God is sovereign, in, in what sense are you and I obedient Sometimes people thought, well, well, maybe we're just like, are we just like robots? Do, do, we, do we have a, a free will? Are we going to find out someday we're like Astro Boy and we, we thought we were real human beings and turns out we were just robots, but not the cool kind who can fly and stuff. But are, are we just, are we robots? Do, do we have real choices? Some people, have, if they've talked about God's sovereignty, they said, well, if God is sovereign, that's going to mean that you and I aren't going to want to be obedient because it's going to like, discourage obedience because we're going to say, well, God's in charge. It doesn't really matter what I do. But let me suggest this to you this morning. We're getting to Joshua, I promise, just a moment here. Let me suggest this to you this morning. You and I struggle with obedience. I think all believers would agree with that statement. We struggle with obedience. But our struggle with obedience is not because we think too much about God's sovereignty, but really because we think too little about it and, and of it. You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Think about the story of the rich young ruler. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He, he comes to Jesus. He, he wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus talks about the commandments and, and the, the the rich young ruler is trying to justify himself. He says, yeah, I've kept all those things from my youth. And Jesus tells him, well, just sell all that you have and, and give it to the poor and, and follow me. In other words, let's, let's talk about the fullness of obedience. And what does the ruler do in response to that? He thinks about it and, and he, he considers following Jesus and he compares it to having his things. And ultimately he says, you know what? The, the, the cost of following Jesus at the expense of my things, is, isn't worth it. Now, what would cause a person to reach that conclusion? Well, it's, it's a low, low understanding of how sovereign God is. If a person is fully convinced of God's sovereignty, and God says, do this, and this is where you'll find joy, what are we going to do? We're going to follow God in, in fullness of obedience. So here's kind of the main statement that I want us, the big idea that I want us to think about this morning as we think about Joshua chapters 10 through 12. It's, it's this idea. God's sovereignty, understanding and thinking about God's sovereignty, 
drives me to deeper and more confident obedience. Contemplating God's sovereignty doesn't make me a robot. Contemplating God's sovereignty doesn't turn me into some sort of fatalist who says, well, whatever will happen will happen. Believing in God's sovereignty is going to drive me to deeper obedience, more fullness of obedience, and more confidence in my obedience as I contemplate God's sovereignty. This text, these, these chapters 10, 11, and 12 from the book of Joshua, help us think through these because in these chapters we're seeing God's providence and and human obedience meld together seamlessly. We're seeing that God is sovereign. We're seeing that his people are obedient and great things are accomplished because of that. So here's what I want to do. I want us to do a couple things. We're going to look at some patterns in these chapters and then we're going to walk through the text and then we're going to look at some principles. But let's begin this morning by looking at some patterns that take place in these chapters. Here's, here's a pattern. And I, I put these things in your notes to kind of help you as we walk through the text. This is kind of some complicated stuff. So hopefully this, this helps you to understand what's happening. There's, there's something that happens in chapters 10 and 11. It's, it's, it's repeated. Here's the first thing that happens is this. The first thing that's ha- that happens as we go through these, these chapters, we see the Canaanites rebel against a sovereign God. So we see that beginning of chapter 10, we're seeing that beginning of chapter 11, throughout. The Canaanites rebel against a sovereign God. They make a, a conscious decision to resist the authority of God. When I was a uh, middle schooler, young high schooler, sometimes families in our little neighborhood would ask me to, to babysit and watch their kids. And it always, it always struck me how I understood whenever kids would rebel when you were trying to do something they, they didn't like you know so you say go to bed and the kids would throw a temper tantrum I don't want to go to bed blah 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 and so you know I understood that like I I was like yeah that makes sense I understand why you're doing that but the thing that always surprised me is whenever I was trying to do something nice like the kid is is wanting to have a snack and and yeah yeah let's have a snack and and then as I'm trying to do something nice for them, they, they fall on the floor and begin to do this, this, this temper tantrum thing. You know, there's this benevolent babysitter trying to get them something, and I'm not getting it fast enough or not in the way that they, and so they're, they're throwing a temper tantrum. And I just would watch these kids flail around on the floor and think, man, what bad parenting, right? Like, these, these parents must really not be able to, to know their, how to teach their children to enjoy good things. And then I became a parent. And I realized it's just the kids. Um, no, it's, it's all of us, right? It's all of us. All of us, you know, there's, there's a God who is powerful, and so it's, it's foolish to resist him regardless. And not only is he powerful, but, but he's good. He, he wants to give us good things, and yet, foolishly, we rebel against him. This, we see that with the Canaanites. The Canaanites rebel against a good and sovereign God. The second thing that happens in these chapters you're going to see is that God is going to give a command to his people and he's going to be emphasizing his sovereignty. I'm talking about his sovereign providence here. He's going to emphasize his sovereignty and then his people are going to be be obedient. The, 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 The revelation of his sovereignty compels obedience. It doesn't discourage it. And then the third thing that we're going to see is we're going to see some action. We're going to see some, some fighting, some warfare. And we're going to see that the action in the story is described in several ways. Sometimes we're going to see just God acting, right? God acts. God causes hailstones to come down from heaven. It's just, just pure, 100% God acting. 
But sometimes we're going to see Joshua or the Israelites acting. They're going to do something. They're going to, God's going to say, do this, and they're going to, to do this fight here, and they're going to fight here. Uh, conquer these people. So we're going to see human activity taking place. And then the last thing that we're going to see is, as the action is described, sometimes the narrator is going to, to give us kind of this, this divine perspective. He's going to show us Joshua and the Israelites acting, but let us know that it's God who is ultimately behind Joshua and the Israelites' success. So I want you to notice these things as we go through these chapters. There's the Canaanites are rebelling. Then God is going to give a command that emphasizes his sovereignty, his, his power, and his, his providential care. He said, do this, and this is what's going to happen, and the people are going to obey. And then the action is going to be described, and sometimes it's going to be talking about how God acts, and sometimes it's going to be talking about how Joshua and the people act, and then sometimes it's going to be showing how Joshua's acting, and it's ultimately God behind it. So let's, let's walk through these chapters, okay? And open up your Bibles to Joshua 10 if, if you've uh, kind of turned away from that. Uh, Joshua chapter 10. We're going to walk through this, and then we're going to kind of draw some principles that help you and I be obedient here. Chapter 10. In chapter 10, he's describing the southern campaign. The narrator's telling us about what happened in the south. And so, remember, the people entered in the middle of the promised land. They conquered Jericho and Ai. And now he's going to tell us about what happens in the south. And sure enough, the first five verses describe the Canaanites rebelling against God. They, they gather together. They hear what's happened with Gibeon. And the king of Jerusalem is... Remember, this isn't controlled by Israel at that point. This is a, a Canaanite king. Here's what's happened to the Gibeonites, that they've made peace with Israel, and he's concerned. He recognizes that the Israelites are becoming more powerful. They now have control over several trade routes, and he and the other kings are in danger if something doesn't take place. And so they gather together to fight against the Israelites. Then you come into verses 6 through 9, and God, again, he gives this command emphasizing his sovereignty. The Gibeonites talk to the Israelites and say, hey, remember we made this treaty with you. We're in danger. You need to come help us out. And so the Israelites begin to make their way. But now look at verse, look at verse 8. And notice God giving a command, emphasizing his sovereignty, and the people obey. So verse 8, the Lord commands, don't fear them. And then, reveals the sovereignty, I have given them into your hands, not a man of them shall stand before you. Now, does that cause passivity? Does it cause the Israelites to say, well, if God's got this taken care of, we don't really need to do anything, God's sovereign, God's in control, or does it cause something else? It causes something else. It causes quick obedience here. It says that, Verse 9, Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. They're, they're obedient. And then, as we come into verses 10 through 15, we see an emphasis on action. Action takes place, but the action is God, right? It says, verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Then, verse 11, as they fled, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and, and they died. And more died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel. And then we come to this very confusing part of the text, in, beginning in verse 12, where it describes Joshua and the people uh, fighting and asking, Joshua 
asks the Lord to, to do something remarkable. Verse 12 he says, sun stands, he asks the Lord to cause the sun to stand still and the moon to stand still. Now, what exactly does that mean? I'm not totally sure. Some, one understanding is that he caused the, the movements of the heavenly bodies, God did, to just simply cease. So it, it stayed light longer. Another way to, to interpret this text is, is you look at the words that are used. Those, the words that Joshua uses here can also be used to describe like the cessation of, of shining. So he may have been saying, Lord, keep it dark. And so the, the sun stood still in the sense that it, it stops shining and the, moon, the, the light from the moon ceases as well. I'm not sure which of those is, is the, the best way to understand it. I, I tend to think that it's talking about the stop, stopping of the movement of these bodies because of what takes place in verse 13, that word, the sun stopped. I think that is kind of describing a, the, the cessation of movement. The bottom line, they needed God to, inter, to intervene in a miraculous way so they could accomplish what God had told them to accomplish, and God does it. God does it. And then, in verses 16 through verse 28, you see this, this combination of Joshua acting and the narrator revealing that God is behind the action, that God is the one giving success. So verse 19, Joshua and the, son of Israel, the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow. That's, that's Joshua acting. And yet at the same time, we see that, again, God is behind it. Verse, verse 25, Joshua tells the people, don't be afraid. This is the, the Lord will do to all the enemies against whom you fight. You come, then verse 29 describes all, so that's, that's kind of the, the beginning of their southern conquest, the beginning of verse 29, describes the conquering of all these other southern cities, and we see this tension. People act, God's behind the action. Verse, um, let's see, where, where's a good verse to describe this? Verse, verse 40, Joshua struck the whole land. Uh, just as the Lord had commanded. And then verse 42, Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for, for Israel. You see that tension there? Well, now we come to chapter 11, and the pattern repeats. Begins just like the southern campaign did. The Canaanites in verses 1 through 5 rebel against the sovereign God, Six through, uh, verses 6 through 9, once again, God gives this command emphasizing his sovereignty, the people obey, and then throughout the rest of the chapter, there's this, this tension of people acting, God being the one who is ultimately behind them, really emphasizing that ultimately this is God's battle. You come into verse 20 of chapter 11, and a very strong statement here, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that's the hearts of the people here in the land, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And then verse 23 of, of chapter 11, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest for more. And then what happens in chapter 12? Chapter 12 is kind of reminding them what happened. Chapter 12, the beginning, talks about the kings that, and areas that Moses defeated, 
And then it talks about the areas and kings that Joshua defeated at the last half of chapter 12. Now, how does this apply to us? How in the world is it relevant to you and me to know about these battles that took place uh, over 3,500 uh, 3, years ago? Or almost 3,500 years ago. How, how is this applicable to you and I in any way whatsoever? I would suggest to you that the way in which we view our lives, the way in which God calls us to view our lives, is, is very much warfare, right? As, as we think about how God describes a Christian life, we, we recognize that we are in warfare as well. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10 says we walk in the flesh, but we're not what? Waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. You and I are at war. And God has called us in the midst of warfare to walk in obedience to him. And just as the Israelites had no ability in and of themselves to walk in obedience to God, apart from him being a sovereign God, so is true for you and me. You and I do not have the ability in and of ourselves to walk in obedience apart from the divine sovereign aid of God. And so let's, let's talk about some principles as we think about this text and this, this tension of God's sovereignty and human obedience. Let's talk about some principles that help us as I think about the sovereign God who call, calls me to spiritual warfare. Here's the first principle. Number one, rest your obedience in God's complete control. As you think about your obedience to God, rest it, ground it, Ground your obedience, rest your obedience in God's complete control. We're not talking about passivity here. Scripture describes God's control in this story in very powerful ways. God is the one who is ultimately at war. And we see this control that God has described, this, this absolute control described throughout Scripture. Isaiah 46, what is what does Isaiah tell us? Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there's no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I, I will accomplish all of my purposes. God has the ability to declare the end of a thing before it begins. And how is God able to do it? Is he just some really, really smart God who can kind of figure out how things are going to, to go? No, it says I'm, I'm going to accomplish it. I'm going to, to bring about what my purposes are. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We have a God who is sovereign in control of all things. And as I'm called to be obedient, I, I rest my obedience in this fact that I believe that God is in complete control. Now, what are some characteristics of obedience that is, is trusting in God's complete control? In other words, if, if I'm convinced of God's complete control, what is my obedience going to look like? What does that obedience look like? It's going to be, first of all, swift obedience, right? God tells Joshua and, and the Israelites to do something. He talks about his sovereignty in, in chapters 10 and 11. And right after, right after he tells them to do something, the, the next verses use the word suddenly or, or quickly, like the, the, the people obey swiftly. My dad used to say, uh, slow obedience is, is no obedience, right? Kids, your parents ever say that to you? Slow obedience is no obedience. In other words, a person who's kind of hears an instruction that kind of says, well, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't, is not a person who's convinced of the authority of the person giving the instruction. It's not the heart of obedience. If I was a, aware of, of God's absolute control and his, his goodness of, uh, at all times, I would be quicker to obey. So obedience that's convinced of God's complete control is going to be swift it's going to be complete, right? Not, not hedging bets. We're not going to say, well, I'm going to be kind of obedient in this area, but, but not completely. I, I grew up in, uh, or I spent a little bit of, of my childhood in, in Houston, Texas. And there was a, a guy on the, on the, the commercials named, uh, well, this was in his Christian name, I'm sure, but Mattress Mac. And, uh, and he was, uh, I just saw that he was on, the, uh, he was on the news recently because as the Astros were making their way through the World Series, he had told everyone who had bought a mattress for $3,000 or more that he would, he would give them the mattresses free if the Astros won the World Series. And he did this a, a few years ago as well when they actually did win the World Series. Uh, sorry if that's too soon, Houston fans. But um, yes, but what he's doing is that the way if they kind of, some of the people found out about this is he was, he was going around to casinos making bets on the Astros winning, just in case they, they won, he'd have the, the money to cover the cost of all these mattresses that he'd given out for free. And he started making more and more bets as the season progressed and as they've progressed to the playoffs. Christians don't hedge our bets. We don't have a, here's what happens, plan A. Here's what happens, plan B. If God is, is uh, in complete control, I'm going to do this. And if God's kind of in control, I'm going to do this. I'm going to kind of enjoy this and enjoy th- Christians, as we are convinced of God's complete sovereignty, are full in our obedience. And, then, and we're also, another characteristic of obedience that's fueled by faith in a sovereign God, our obedience is, is confident, right? Our obedience is, is confident. We, we trust. We trust God. Continually in Scripture, we're told, fear not. And as, we, as God tells us to do things, if we're convinced of his sovereignty, of his power, we trust him. Sometimes, as we think about something that God has called us to do, and perhaps this is where you are this morning too, we know that God has called us to, to walk down a certain path. But as we think about what it means to walk down that path, 
we're aware of, of some of the things that could potentially happen on that path. So, for example, maybe, maybe there's someone in your life that you have, have wronged, and you recognize, I, I need to ask for forgiveness for, for this person, from this person, but you say, boy, once I, once I have that conversation, I know that they're going to be upset because maybe they don't even know what I did, so I'm going to ask for forgiveness in this area and con- confess this sin, and, and once I say this, then they're going to say this, and it's going to hurt our relationship. And so what, what's happened? You have a belief that if, if you walk down that path of obedience that God has called you on, it's not going to be a good path. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a decision you need to, to make at work. Maybe there's a conversation you need to have with your boss at work. You say, boy, if I, if I tell my boss what I'm really thinking, if I, if I stand up for what I know is right in this area, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to lose my job, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. Oftentimes, our lack of obedience to God, and again, maybe some of us are here this morning, our lack of obedience is because we're not fully convinced of God's sovereignty. And an awareness of God's sovereignty doesn't discourage our obedience as we become robots. It, it, it fuels our obedience as we say, okay, let me think about who's telling me to do this. A sovereign God who's, who's, who's providential, who exercises providence over his creation, that there's a relationship with his creation, he's the one who's telling me to do this. And he is the God who knows not just ultimately what will happen on this path, but he knows an, an, a seemingly infinite number of paths upon which I could walk. And he has had an infinite amount of time to consider all the paths that I could have walked upon. And in his sovereignty, and in his goodness, and in his knowledge, he is saying, you, Daniel, walk on this one. Well, God, if I walk on this one, then this one. Hey, you, Daniel, be obedient here. And if I am convinced of God's sovereignty and his providence in my life, I'm going to say, okay, I believe you. I will walk this path of obedience even though it seems like it's not going to lead to my ultimate joy. Responding in obedience to God's sovereignty, I rest my obedience in God's complete control. Number two, I recognize that my obedience is not the source of God's power. I recognize that my obedience is not the source of God's power. What does that mean? It means I understand that God acts apart from my obedience. My obedience, the the quality or the quantity of my obedience, doesn't affect God's power in and over my life. Sometimes as we think about what's happening in our life, we think about God and his interaction with us, we think, well, boy, if if I'm not obedient in this area, then God can't do this thing. And and there's certainly a a truth that obedience brings blessing. But ultimately, as I think about God and his interaction in my life and his, his work in my life, I recognize God's power isn't dependent upon me. God is working great things as a divine warrior. Psalm 24 describes our God. It says, lift up your heads in verse 7, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, so the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of of hosts, he is the king of glory. We have in the God that we serve a God who is a divine warrior who is battling on our behalf. He is not 
dependent upon me, obeying enough for him to have the power to act, he can act in and of himself as a sovereign God. I recognize that my obedience is not the the source of his power. There are times that God must step in and act throughout this story in chapters 10 through 12 in dramatic ways, and he must do so in my life as well. Just thinking about uh, this, this past week as I think about my my marriage, right? Whitney and I started dating when we were in high school, and we were very immature. We were, I, I, was, I was very foolish. And, you know, if you want to have some, some fun, uh, next time my father-in-law is in town, just, just ask him, say, hey, tell, us some, tell me some funny stories about Daniel and Whitney when they were in high school. He'll love. In fact, even if you don't ask, he loves to tell these stories. Whitney and I don't want to be around because they're so embarrassing as we think about uh, high school, Daniel and Whitney. But, uh, but he loves to talk about those things. My point is that God took my relationship with my wife. And despite any obedience on my part or any sort of, 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 of wise thinking in terms of, of me just being some sort of spiritual giant or somehow deserving a, a, a marriage that I have, God in his grace acted. God in his kindness acted in such a way that, that I, have, I have nothing that I can brag about in terms of what God accomplished in my marriage relationship. And that is true in so many areas of our life. As we think about God being sovereign, we worship him. We say, okay, God, what you've done in my life is, is not a result of my goodness. It's not a result of me figuring everything out. You have just simply been kind to me. Now, what are some signs? What are some signs, some characteristics that are going to be true if, if I recognize this? One, I'm going to have peace, right? If I recognize that my obedience is not the source of God's power, there's going to be a, a peace in my life as I say, you know what? I failed last week in some tremendous ways, and this morning, as I think about you, God, I am, I am turning my sin over to you. I'm believing that you are sovereign and that you have forgiven me, and now today I'm asking, I'm, I'm falling upon your grace, asking that you and your grace would allow me to continue to walk in obedience today. And a sign that I believe that God is sovereign, that I believe that what he says is true, a sign is going to be peace, believing that to be true. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan describes Christian approaching the, the palace beautiful. and he, he, He's hoping to be able to stay there. And as, as he walks to the, the, the entrance, he sees two lions. And Bunyan writes, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. And so often that's true in our life, right? We... we recognize that God is in control, we believe that he's doing what he's, what we believe we need to do what he's told us to do, and yet we're fearful, but we believe that God is ultimately in control. There's peace. Another sign, another sign that we recognize that our obedience is not the source of God's power, that he's our divine warrior. Another sign is humility, right? Humility. As we recognize that God is sovereign, we, we simply say, God, what you will, and let me be obedient. James 4, Blake preached on this a few months ago. James 4 
Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and then also do this or that. A sign that you believe that God is sovereign, that he's your, that he is uh, that my obedience is not the source of his powers, that I'm, I'm humble as I recognize the things that he does. And another sign, another sign is prayer. Another sign that I believe that my obedience is not the source of God's powers is prayer. And boy, we could do a whole sermon on how to understand the interaction between God's sovereignty and, his, and, and prayer, right? But as we think about prayer, we say, okay, I, I recognize that God is sovereign, and so I I'm going to just beseech him as a sovereign God, not on the basis of my own works, but on the basis of his kindness, his goodness, his power. I'm going to ask for him to act. Luke 18, there's a parable of the widow and the wicked judge. And the the, the widow continues to to ask and beseech this wicked judge to give her justice and the, the judge says, I fear neither God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the righteous judge says. And then Jesus makes this application. If, if, a, if, if an unrighteous judge will say that, how much more will God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? We believe this morning that we do not have in and of ourselves the ability to be obedient, the ability to, the ability to be obedient, or the ability to, to accomplish the things in our life that God tells us to accomplish. How do we respond to that? We respond by simply crying out to God and saying, God, please act. Joshua and the Israelites are obedient, and, and God's sovereignty fuels their obedience, but it, at some point they have to simply sit back and say, okay, God, now, now you act, and the same is true for you and me. And then the third thing to think about here, rejoice that your obedience glorifies God. Rejoice that your obedience glorifies God. Joshua does something. God gets the ultimate credit throughout the story. I rejoice that God's grace works in such a way that I desire to be obedient. Even as I'm obedient to God, I recognize that God gets the glory for that. We're not robots. We're not robots. But our king is is a sovereign king beyond what we have the ability to to even conceptualize. How might your obedience look different if you were fully convinced of that truth? If you were fully convinced that there is a, a good God, a sovereign God who has given you these commands and instructions, if you were fully convinced of that truth, that he is able to reward those who serve him faithfully, if you were fully convinced of that truth, what would be different about your obedience this week? Let's pray that God in his grace would help me be more and more convinced of his sovereignty, that he would drive me to deeper and more complete and confident obedience. Let's pray. 
Father, we recognize this morning that you are a good and sovereign God over all things. And we pray that you would help us be more and more convinced of that truth, that you would drive it deeper and deeper into our soul so that we would walk in obedience with complete abandon, trusting in you and you alone. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our, our, our perfect warrior who goes before us, who gives us the obedience that we cannot earn in and of ourselves. And so ultimately this morning we trust in him. Our confidence is not in ourselves, it's not in our righteousness, it's not in our own goodness, but in the perfect righteousness of your son, Jesus. We trust in him and we pray this in his name this morning. Amen.